Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. Let's talk about Labour, Stephen. Remember Labour? Um, are they... Sort of about yay high, uh, you know, opposed to cuts to the welfare state. That are they the one with 200 and something MPs? Oh, oh, sassy. I think I used to get press releases from them, but... Um, it's gone a bit, a bit quiet. It's all gone a bit quiet on the Western <laughs> Front. Um, You've written your column this week about Momentum. Yes. Which is a very successful and very interesting group that I think is probably both represented in the press as being kind of more powerful and more sinister than it actually is, right? It, I mean, you make a good case that it kind of comes out of the same tradition as Labour First or Progress or in back in history further back, the Fabian Society, right? Mm. There is a long-standing tradition of Labour leaders having a group that they kind of come from, an intellectual tradition that they come from. And then also uh, it helps to exert their will over the grassroots and their internal opponents. And the thing about all of these institutions, right, is they all tend to have an element of being a front group. And of course, there's an irony of us discussing this on the New Statesman podcast, because of course, we were were established as as a front group. And now we have a culture editor who has a very good interview with uh, with Paul Beattie in this week's magazine like and so there's this weird function creep with 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 front organizations that you have to spend a lot of time servicing the front and some people join because they just want to do the thing that it's a front for and they start complaining because the leadership isn't spending enough time on the organization's notional process and these and you know eventually i'm just here for the donuts the excellent donuts that get left out on the web team desk occasionally by a noosh yeah that's really that's all um, I want. Um, so what I think is really interesting is you made the case in your column that Momentum were the engine of uh, Jeremy for Labour the first time round, right? And yeah. they coalesced very quickly around him. And they were also incredibly important in his second election victory. But shock, massive shock, shock, the extra parliamentary left group in schism horror. Yeah, I mean, and there are a couple of... Uh, interesting dimensions, some of which I, I talk about in my column this week, some of which I've written about online. Um, and I think the difficulty with talking about it is the urge, I can feel myself wanting to simplify it for ease of listening, uh, which I'm going to do, but these are very crude uh, groups. And there are basically four and a bit factions, right? <laughs> that doesn't sound very simplified, but okay. 
because so on the one hand you kind of have what you might call the momentum leadership or momentum headquarters and the kind of so that's john landsman right who's who is the one who is the sort of proprietor of it he's currently in sole charge of this very valuable contact data they've collected he started off as tony ben's fixer yeah he came into politics as an aide to tony ben what's he been doing since then um, well, so, I mean, we shouldn't forget that Tony Benn did continue to be a, a force, albeit a diminishing one, basically until... Nine, so he worked on him on his almost successful deputy leadership bid in 1981 and his significantly less successful uh, bid in 1988, nine. Yeah, difficult um, second bid syndrome. I can't recall exactly. Um, he then, uh, you know, kind of continued... To um, you know, to, to work for the left mainly to be defeated, of course, but you know, kind of a perennial uh, presence at party conference, telling delegates to vote the right way. Um, I'd like to make it clear that at various points in this podcast, I'm going to use the word right both to yeah. describe a position and also correct, and that is the correctness of whoever I'm speaking about at the time. I am not making a comment one way or the other. So. That's faction one, then sort of let's roughly kind of call it the landsmanites, yeah, right, or the, the the current the current leadership at the top. Faction two, come on down. Faction two are, in some ways, you might call them the the Corbynites, right? People who joined the Labour Party because of Corbyn, but and this is the important thing because the third faction also joined the Labour Party because of of Corbyn. But um, Richard Seymour puts it very well actually in his, his book. They're not programmatic or, or ideological right they are the kind of people who they might they would have voted they the kind of people who voted corbyn in the leadership caroline flint in the deputy race i think of those people as maybe the movement people right they're the people who who want something different in politics and they thought corbyn was the best way to achieve it right they're not necessarily people who would self-define as being on the hard left yeah they, they might say they, they were want on the change. soft left they might say they were on the left of the labor party but they are, yeah, they're the kind of people who, yeah, they, yeah, they, they are not, um, they're not factional, um, and they're the kind of people who would probably describe being factional as if it were slightly negative. Mm-hmm. Um, so the difference between them and Group Three. So who's Group Three? Group Three are people who've joined the Labour Party because of Corbyn, because they are, and this is why I kind of I said four and a bit, because they fit into two groups. One, they're people who liked, say, who who got disillusioned during the Kinnock years or the Blair years and left. They're fairly ordinary uh, members of the Labour Party. And then you have people who are members of Trotskyite and other groupings uh, that want to take over and destroy the Labour Party because they see that as the prerequisite to bringing about their mode and style of politics. They think the first thing you have to do is you have to show them you cannot achieve radical change through the ballot box. And they believe that So those are the... Sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. Those are the, that's the group that I think there's been a lot of focus on, right? Because they just remind people of militant. Yeah. Um, and they also remind people of those older battles about about Stalinism and about whether or not you have to kind of, you know, just show that the, the struggle is impossible, but you radicalise people through it. And there are people who see austerity in that way, aren't there? Who they see it as, yes, we don't believe the fight against austerity can be won through parliamentary means, but in so doing, we will kind of energise the proletariat to realise that actually capitalism as a whole needs to be destroyed. Yeah, that's that's exactly it, and they are the group that the, uh, the right wing press uh, gets very excited about, and actually not just the right wing press. A lot of people who uh, perhaps their understanding of the Labour Party is not what it once was uh, will will, um, 
I like that because I don't know who you're subtweeting, but I know uh, that you're doing a real life subtweet. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll focus on that. And actually, the the difficulty is is sometimes in copy, uh, I've fallen into into that trap partly because they are. It, it's it's very easy to write about it through the prism of faction one, the Landsmanites, and faction three, the kind of your, your the Trotskyites or the Alliance of Workers' Liberty, because it's two groups with very clear things that they want both of whom will pick up the phone and answer, and who you can kind of quantify. It's quite difficult to quantify what it is than a librarian in her 50s who's joined the Labour Party because they're inspired by Jeremy Corbyn, who might vote, and obviously is the really important person in that struggle for power, right? Yeah, and but, I think there are an enormous number of people that you talk to in, in Momentum and on that section of the left who actually are a lot less dogmatic about Corbyn as a human being than you might expect. I mean, I definitely talk to people who, and this is going to sound very pejorative, but I mean genuinely see him as a as a sort of messiah, as an emissary, right? They're very invested in him personally, and that is a group. But they're also a kind of group who, you know, would probably would vote for Clive Lewis, say, right? You know, they would vote for anyone who's seen as the heir. What they don't want is a kind of counter-revolution, and they saw Owen Smith as the kind of the counter-revolution. Yeah, and then there are, and then I'd say there's the fourth group who are uh people who have stuck around in the labor party losing a lot of conference motions who really like the structures of the labor party they they like delegates they and they want that model for for momentum and so this is the argument right so this yeah. is this is what i love when i was editing your column i was just like basically this is all kind of like this whole thing has been burbling along for a really long time and it's come out into the open because essentially someone called a meeting at short notice which is like the most amazing left-wing politics thing and tell, correct me if i'm getting this, getting this wrong but john landsman calls a uh, a meeting of the i'm gonna it's right steering committee yep. which is the one that has on it jill mountford who's a member of alliance workers liberty which is this yep. a- actual trotskyite group uh it's still jackie walker is still on it uh, although she's no longer vice chair due to the allegations of anti-semitism and various others and at that meeting, they, which few people are, are, I'm not sure if Matt Rack of the Fire Brigade Union is, is able to make it or not. I know he's subsequently very grumpy about it. Um, yeah, he wasn't able to make so it. So he wasn't able to make it. So they then vote not to have a meeting of the National Committee in December. And the point was that everyone has sort of expected the National Committee would be where they'd kind of organise their resistance to landsmen, the anti-landsmen faction, yeah. right? So they feel that they've had this opportunity deprived of them. Michael Chesham, who, full disclosure, writes for the NS, who I find a really interesting voice on this, right, has written a Facebook post saying that, you know, this, the effect of all this is essentially to deprive their upcoming conference in February of kind of democratic legitimacy. It's just going to turn into a sort of live stream festival i think he said with you know stuff going through by e-ballots but that's what you were saying about delegates isn't it is that there's now a war about whether or not they should put everything to a kind of vote online or whether or not they should have a delegate system which for our one remaining listener who hasn't now dropped off to sleep at the amount of time we've been talking about intra-left infighting is quite interesting uh yes i i think it is um and once again i say a sentence out loud and i wonder <laughs> how it is and i got married but um but um I think it's interesting, partly because the really fascinating thing about it is, although you have these two factions who wanted it for fairly transparent reasons, right? When John set up Momentum, he thought they would have a delegate system because delegate systems are easier to control if you're well organised. It turns out there's another group of people who are well, who are just as well organised as him who might take control of it, and so now they're going to have an all-member, one-vote system 
in order to stuff the people who... Who are might, actual trots, who, yeah. right? Not just trots in this sort of general majority, majority like, of kind of, well, like, lefty no, like way. Actual, actual like they're trots, well like. organised, very well disciplined. They will yeah. turn up to everything. They will put really long motions through. Yeah, and they're serious operators, and they, uh, and they are, you know, I think perhaps one of the reasons why what's happened is I think they've been underestimated by a lot of people in Momentum who... Kind of like, oh, lol, trots, haven't they just lost everything, etc., etc. Particularly because the Alliance for Workers' Liberty are a slightly odd trot group for reasons that I will not go into because... Well, there's only like 120 of them, right, they claimed. And then they also claimed that they didn't exist earlier this summer, which they they seem to have sort of magically resurrected themselves. Yeah, I mean, it, it is... But, yeah, so the thing is, on the one hand, you have people who are basically arguing for rule changes because they think that they benefit them. And then you have two groups... Some who are arguing for Omov because they just like Omov and they just think it's good. One member, one vote. One member, one vote. They like they like online democracy, and then you have another group which likes delegate systems because they just like delegate systems, um, and so that's kind of what the issue of contention is. But the big end result of this is whether or not you end up with a momentum which does one of two, th- uh, three things: either it is mainly a, a force in internal political fights in the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Which the Corbyn project badly needs. They've won two very lonely landslides. They have yet to get anyone selected to Parliament who you would describe as a serious Corbynite operator. Actually, the winner of most of the selection battles so far in this Parliament has been the GMB. Um, so that is something which is worth worth watching because it's starting to panic people at Unite. And there are beginning to be some little splits as well, aren't there, on things like Heathrow and on things like Trident. Actually, that's beginning to become a kind of increasingly worrying area for, for Corbyn and, and, and his allies is that there are a couple of big battles coming up where they're on a different side to some big unions. Yes, and it, that's going to get more fraught because Len McCluskey has to get re-elected. So, Which is next year? Next year. Yeah. And so it will become in Len's interest to have a fight which he wins, right? It's in his interest to be able to say to people... To unite members who are employed by Heathrow, by the defence industries, etc., etc., etc. Do you know I, what? I was just thinking, I won't have a word send against highly litigious Len McCluskey on this podcast, even, so don't even think about it. Okay, I will uh, duly moderate my... Uh, how, however, yeah, it is in, in Len's interests to have a fight in which he wins, so he can say to those members, look, I'm big, I'm tough, stick with stick with me and you'll never go hungry again. Um but that, yeah, but that, that that is the fundamental point about this. I mean, I know this must seem like to a lot of people like a sort of bold men fighting over a comb when the Labour Party is so far from power. I guess it's a break from our usual thing of talking about bold men fighting over our trade agreements. Yay, Brexit. Um, we nearly got through a podcast without mentioning Brexit, but no, we were vanquished at the last moment. Um but but it is a bit about about yeah exactly about the future of the whether or not the Labour Party as a force is going to achieve what people who voted for Corbyn wanted right that's essentially kind of what we're coming coming down to is 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 Corbyn uh, within Labour as Labour leader the kind of vessel for what you want or or is he the kind of the last bastion that must be smashed in order to usher in something much better. Yeah, and that is kind of uh, part of the divide. So there are some people who basically think the right will take back control. And what they need is to have a situation where when that happens, momentum can split off, can take a couple of MPs with it, and it can be a new populist left party. And then there's a third group of people who genuinely think that what it ought to do is be primarily a social movement in order to build the awareness that you need in the country for... Corbyn to win. Well, there's one thing I think that's really interesting about this is also sh- how much should it be an incubator of surrogates for Corbyn? 
Um, I mean, this is something that I've talked about a lot because obviously there's a criticism that's that's thrown at the left wing media that you know this is Corbyn represents a lot of people on the left and within Labour's opinions, and actually we're not hearing enough from them. And this has been one of the persistent things that I think has been a problem is that there aren't that many people you can go to who are you know seen to speak with the kind of authority of really knowing what's going on in, in that project. As you say, it was a lonely landslide. Um, and someone like James Schneider, for example, of Momentum, has emerged as one of the few people that will kind of consistently go on and deliver a really kind of compelling, coherent Corbynite line on TV and radio. Yeah, and then that is... So he is now confirmed he is going to join the leader's office as their uh, kind of set as uh, Seamus Milne's number two, which is a big, a big game for loss. them because journalists really like him yeah but as you say it's also a big loss because he is someone who but he, is natural he, on telly etc yeah. etc he's sort of in the same we way that stop actually saying nice things about him though because he listens to the podcast okay yeah. I, I hear he smells yeah um but no but in the same way that you know if, if diane abbott you know decided she was going to go and go on a gap year i don't know i'm trying to think what would happen but that was it's just a bit you know just in terms of reliable operators who can go and do the sunday shows and get the message out they're not flush with them at all so that will be a big front of her and the same way that actually seamus milne going to the office was a big loss for them because it was one of very few columnists who could kind of deliver that that point of view yeah and it does mean that one of the things that they they struggle with and you can argue about whether or not this is actually useful but would certainly help help them get better coverage. And again, you can argue about the use or lack of there of that. Is they don't have a large group of people who you could do the kind of pitch rolling thing, you know, where you know Monday column, I don't know, Jenny Russell goes, isn't it awful that Uber does X Y Z? Wednesday column, Gabby Hinsliff, I managed to not assign a single correct comment columnist to their day, but I'm just going to yeah. power on. Gabby Hinsliff goes. A variation on that theme. Thursday, John McDonnell announces policy, and you've kind of created this sense that oh, wouldn't it be great for for someone to do something about it? Which is kind of what McDonnell is trying to do with the basic income stuff. Um, but they sort of don't have that strength and depth yet. Yeah, I think that John McDonnell's office are gen- are are getting better at that kind of stuff about talking about saying here are the things that we find that we think are important that we're going to be talking about. Uh, which you know then just pushes stuff up the agenda in terms of how how seriously it's taken by journalists and how much they they think and that's a bit of I mean I wonder often with this if we should be slightly more self-critical as a media I know you I know you rightly say that there's nothing the media loves more than talking about itself but actually all these things that we kind of assume I think if you've if God knows if the Clinton and the Podesta email scandal has shown you anything. It's that stuff that everybody inside the Guild thinks is absolutely normal tradecraft. Lots of people outside sort of see this as kind of being a horrific conspiracy. And I think, you know, sites like the Canary really trade on the idea that there's something incredibly um, dishonest and manipulative about about press briefings and about running a press strategy and its kind of collusion with journalists. Well, it is also part of the fact that journalism is mostly an incredibly socially rarefied um in industry um in the most people don't know any journalists right it's which is partly the london centric thing but actually even in the london centric divide like i'm fairly certain i'm the only person who's gone to my school who has worked as a journalist you know at least in like my yeah, no, I didn't know anyone who was yeah. a journalist growing up. And I think that's one of the things you kind of, when you get into journalism, you, you meet people who would have had 
journalists around the dinner table when they were growing up or you know all what you think it must be like for people who go to really posh schools and that you're just you, you know you're always going to see like people that you knew when you were 13 are going to be like in the cabinet it's yeah. just a really fundamentally a weird experience anyway um, we're going to start but you, my, you and I are going to reenact the Forty Auctionman, which you're going to win. But, so that maybe we should go through. But my my instinct is one of the reasons why journalists aren't very good at uh, at explaining what it is they do is well, everyone everyone knows that, don't they? I mean, all the sophisticated people do. That I think was... you should do more of that accent. I really like that. Yeah. Hello, here's the news. It's read by Stephen Bush. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's um, let let's let's get, no, let, let's let's maybe talk to some. Maybe we should do an episode on on lobby journalism and actually what it is and like why I have problems with it. Um, I'm trying to get me kicked out of the parliamentary. Press no, now. but I just think about <laughs> just about how because just on the fundamental nuts and bolts level, I think that probably most people who are sane and have you know other things in their life don't know about when the brief you know what briefings happen and, and the conventions around that and kind of stuff like that. Yeah, I, yeah, I am trying to get you kicked out. Yeah, cool. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. Right, George is away, but this week we're putting a call through to Anoush, who has just heard Gordon Brown's speech on Brexit, the regions, and a third thing. So let's go down the line to Not the Lobby with Anoush. Hello. Hello. Um, I went to go and see Gordon Brown do his uh, response to Brexit uh, today. It was in Westminster Cathedral. He was doing the Gordon Brown thing of um, doing a very solemn but commanding speech with no, you know, no notes, no piece of paper, just standing doing hand gestures. Yeah, the hands, the hand gestures, very synchronized, uh, very commanding. And he was talking about actually a subject that is difficult to get people interested in. Um, It's the idea of a people's... um, constitutional convention i think we've had this phrase used before and it's it's a phrase that's never put in headlines because it's so dull um and it's the idea of going around the country and speaking to representatives of the uh different regions and the devolved uh nations as well asking them what they want to get out of devolution with the idea of empowering uh the regions and taking power away well taking more power away from westminster and whitehall so this was his message and this was his uh, idea for how to fix the country post brexit which he thinks is going to become more and more unequal uh, if we have um, a brexit that doesn't massively devolve in- investment right and um obviously you know, brown speeches sort of tend to have a oh did he do the amy winehouse he didn't <laughs> he didn't do the amy winehouse anecdote and i was really disappointed about that because so, I, I i only just recently found out what it was and so i was waiting for that bit so i will for our listeners do the amy winehouse <laughs> so i was at nelson mandela's <laughs> 90th anniversary and amy winehouse said to him you and my husband have something in common You've both been in prison. And uh, one of his former PPSs revealed to me that the reason why he tells his story so much is he he's memor- he can... And this is one of the things which does, I think, show what a remarkable mind Gordon Brown has. He can tell that story while, remember- while searching his memory for the bit of the speech he's currently giving to uh, remind himself. So that's why when he's doing one of these off-the-cuff speeches, if he does that one, it's because he can... 
he can s- retrieve the missing bit of the speech <laughs> and he's forgotten. And it's giving him time to think about which bit, yeah. Yeah, which I just think is like an amazing about. sort of two-track. But yeah, so how, how how would you rate this this particular Brown speech? Well, I think it's an important intervention. Unfortunately, it was a little bit um, overshadowed by the news halfway through that the um, campaigners had won the court battle um, over Article 50, which means that the government will have to go to Parliament before triggering Article 50. So, I mean, there was a moment, it was quite funny because the news was broken to Gordon halfway through his Q&A at the end of the speech and he just went, oh, that's dramatic. And then he just carried on talking about federalism. Um, But yeah, I think it's important. And we have had a response from Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan, uh, Carwin Jones, and uh, I think some of the other, uh, Kezia Dugdale. Mm. Um, They've done a joint statement urging Labour to campaign for this kind of federal settlement that Gordon Brown's laid out. So it's obviously something that's on the mind of high profile figures in the Labour Party. And there are MPs who are supporting Gordon Brown's vision, like... um, Alison McGovern and John Trickett, who are from very different sections of the Labour Party, who will both be urging the leadership to campaign for for this kind of post-Brexit Britain model. About the court case, um, mm. so what's happened just just to catch all of you up is the the court has has set has ruled the right to trigger Article Fifty is not a power reserved to the executive, but the legislature because it involves the removal of rights and only the legislature can remove rights. My impression, however, is that actually there is not a majority in Parliament to overturn Brexit, but actually it feels to me there's probably not even a majority in Parliament anymore for a soft Brexit. I think people immediately looked at this news and thought, great, Brexit can be overturned, because they're thinking about the Commons, how it was before the EU referendum result. Now, I know that the makeup of it is exactly the same, but as you say... Um, although like a majority of Tory MPs were campaigning for Remain, that doesn't mean that they still are in favour of remaining in the European Union now. And that's partly because they believe that Britain has spoken, but also lots of them are in, lots of Labour MPs as well are in seats that voted leave, so they can't ignore their constituents. So I think it's quite lazy analysis that people assume that Parliament are going to vote against Brexit. I don't know what you think, but I I, I suspect that you agree. No, I, that, that's my sort of instinct too. And then it felt like... Um... I mean, a lot of Tory MPs who campaigned to remain actually campaigned to still have a job under David Cameron yeah. when he won the referendum, which obviously didn't work out that well for them. A lot of Labour MPs are terrified that they'll get Scotlanded if they go against their votes on it. So, mm. yeah, no, I, it feels like lazy analysis. And we will, of course, be back with more lazy analysis <laughs> next week. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And I'm John. And we host Skylines, a city metric podcast where every two weeks we talk about cities, maps and the human world. Whether the Olympics are good for cities, what it's like to be a woman in a city. And we've had guests like Lauren Elkin, Caroline Criado Perez. And Neil Codling, the keyboard player from Suede, because I'm nearly cool now. Tune in on iTunes or on Acast. Check it out. And now um, let's have a small election preview, which will mostly consist of me going, ah, I looked at 538 and it's all gone right, it's all gone wrong. It's not my happy place in the way that it used to. Um, But do you know what? You are the reverse Cassandra. You're the anti-Cassandra, Stephen, because you are more sanguine about Hillary Clinton's chances than a lot of American journalists would you like to bathe us in the warm glow of your certainty that it's actually fine? So the slightly terrifying thing about this is I have never gone into an election 
where something bad has happened and not been emotionally hedged for it. So if it turns out I'm wrong, I am not sure what will happen on the live blog. Uh, but it, 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 it may suddenly just become like updates of me swearing. But, um. Yeah, she, we'll just be like, it'll be 1am and she'll lose like Colorado and then Nevada and then Pennsylvania and then it'll just, you know, the live blog will just be just you holding down your finger on the A key. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so there are a couple of reasons why I am, I mean, obviously I am, I am worried for a couple of reasons, right? One, ultimately, the world's largest superpower, one of its major parties, has a candidate whose foreign policy is after you clawed to Vladimir Putin and uh, palling around with white supremacists at home, right? That is that is terrifying. We, we forget that actually, right, in 2012, from a European perspective, right, Mitt Romney would have been a great president, right? He actually wouldn't, would not have been... Mittens. Would not have been bad for for the average person outside of America, and John but, McCain as well. I don't yeah. think we, I do think I know we get accused on the left of being uh, unnecessarily like palpitationy about every Republican president. Yes, fair enough. By British standards, they are all extremely right wing. Um, but you know, the thought of Sarah Palin as vice president was kind of mildly horrifying. But John McCain had been a senator for a long time, had sponsored a lot of bipartisan bills, including stuff on immigration reform, you know, was this decorated war veteran who'd selflessly refused to be released from captivity because he was an admiral's son when other people were due to be released first. Like, he was just a completely different calibre of candidate, as was Mittens, who, when he was governor, actually put through a very progressive piece of healthcare reform that later got, you know... Well, this, bits of it got pinched for Obamacare. Mitt Romney's great tragedy was that the governor he ran on in Massachusetts probably would have been able to win the general election, but in order to become the Republican candidate, the candidate he became had was 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 dead on arrival with uh, with the wider public, and it is unnerving that, as Jamel Bowie puts it. My take home is a candidate could have on this sort of ticket of of effectively white reactionary politics probably could have won if they were more polished. Well, um, which is fairly scary. I think the, we know that twenty twelve had only white men voted. It would have been a landslide for Mitt Romney. I mean, yeah. that's one of the things that everyone pins their hope on is is kind of a demographic change in America. Um, greater numbers of black and Hispanic voters, greater number of college educated voters. The problem is the reaction to that, and I think what we've definitely seen this year, is that that very demographic change itself provokes a huge amount of anxiety among white voters about their place in society and you know what they feel is their, their due. Um, I'm getting quite umpity about the idea about this sort of economic anxiety narrative because I feel like I agree that there is definitely something there that people do feel very anxious about globalization they feel very anxious about you know places where there are few opportunities and few jobs but equally well you look at the polling and actually uh, Trump's primary voters earned more on average than either Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton's the difference was that more of them were white so it's 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 not about poverty something is happening to poor white americans it is not happening to poor black americans in terms of where their politics are so it's not enough just to say of course you would vote for a quasi fascistic demagogue if you're poor yeah i mean i think also so my my best man is uh, is actually in pennsylvania which is terrifying seeing as since uh, he first got the vote he has voted for in order the labor party in 2010 and 2015 
Ken Livingston 2012, <laughs> Andy Burnham 2010, Liz Kendall 2015, Owen Smith 2016, AV and Remain. So if if so that is a big data point to suggest Hillary's going to lose. Did you also lose. send out Eddie Izzard? I did not the send The albatross Eddie Izzard, of left-wing um, politics. But but yeah, the thing he's in Pennsylvania and he was saying actually no and he's not someone who I would say was that enthusiastic about Hillary. Uh but you know, he said, yeah, actually, you know, you're in Pennsylvania, and you, and you talk to lots of Hispanic Hispanic people and lots of black people in, you know, in in you know, frankly, slum conditions, um, who are excited by Hillary, and, and actually, but they don't get a seat in the table in this discussion because it turns out that white loaded people are more interested in the anger of white white not loaded, white not loaded people than they are in the hope of non loaded well, minorities. Let's also t- talk about this problem about the idea of, of Hillary. Oh, how could the Democrats put forward Hillary, a candidate that people feel so unenthusiastic about? And actually the FT's leader had something about how uninspiring she was, saying she struggled in the primaries against Bernie Sanders. And you're like, I should like to struggle in the pr- pr- primaries against De- Bernie Sanders and still win by whatever it was, million Three million yeah, votes, I mean, was, and she won fifty-five percent of of that vote. You know, on the same kind of margin that Corbett won in his first round. I know it was a totally different thing, and it's proportional voting, but you know what I mean. Fifty-five percent of the vote. It just she just didn't. It wasn't a knife edge. She won convincingly and soundly that Democratic primary. Yeah, although I mean, I I think weirdly that the. So I think one of Hillary's problems now is the U.S. media is obsessed with the horse race, right, and reports on it as if it's close. Even if it's not, I also think that both voters and American journalists have an implicit bias that they cover Hillary as a prospective president and Trump as a failed agent of of a, a reactionary politics, which I mean may turn out to be right, but it's not really an appropriate way to cover an, an ongoing election. But in the primaries, because they everyone ignored the fact that it was just not a knife edge, right? It, there was this huge firewall of African American voters which, unless there had been a massive shift of, it was impossible for Sanders to win. One argument that a lot of people who make, who supported Sanders make to me, which I, th- I think is, uh, you know, it, I mean, it could be true, is that if Sanders' policy platform had, had featured more in the media at the expense of, oh, Sanders is on a knife edge, that might have helped him. I mean, I don't think it would have helped him enough, but I think it would have helped him more than effectively fictitious reports suggesting it was a close election did. Interesting. Do you know what I went? I've been writing a piece about post-truth politics for an American magazine, and I went to find the first usage of it, and it's actually it's from a blog on a site called The Grist. Um, and and what the case is, it's not making the case the way that that's now used. Actually, the way it's talking about it is about what voters do and how they make their decisions, and saying that we work on an assumption that people look at the policy platforms of both sides and then shoot, like make their decision about which one they like the most. Mm. And saying, actually, no, we've got that entirely the wrong way around. And what voters do is they find the party that they feel aligns with their values and then cherry pick the things about that that they can then say that they support. And I think that is probably a much more helpful way about looking uh, at the way that voters kind of approach things. So actually, that's what I mean about Sanders' policy platform being out there wouldn't necessarily have helped him. Because I, I, you know, I've, I've started playing a fun game. When people say about Clinton and the emails, you go, yeah. oh, right, yeah, Clinton and the emails. Um, explain to me what, what the problem is with Clinton and the emails. And actually, at that point, it kind of a glazed look often comes over people because they actually don't, they've just heard that the emails are bad. The emails are bad, it's a scandal, bad email scandal. But actually what it is, is it's playing to a larger narrative of Clinton as being overly secretive and clammed up, not very likable, not very warm. Um, somebody who's maybe got the, you know, the establishment sewn up, you know, they've, they've conspired to keep Bernie out, that kind of thing. 
Um, so actually, it's you know, it's it's not about the e- the emails are not are kind of neither here nor there. Yeah, I also think that with the O, there should have been a better candidate than Hillary, right? I mean, and this might be where my my massive myopia about Barack Obama comes to play, right? But there is only one politician in the last ten years who has ever made it look like Obama wasn't just going to carry it all before him, and it's Hillary Clinton. I find it hard to reconcile that with the idea that she is actually that rubbish. The reason why there was not a candidate who could defeat her in the primaries is one. To be honest, the way to defeat Hillary would either have been to be black and to her left, uh, and to be very good at good at politics. There wasn't really someone who mm. fulfilled that. Cory Booker is not to the left of Hillary Clinton, um, or to be a Southern Democrat. But there weren't any because they all lost their seats uh, in order to pass Obamacare, right? And and I think that that is kind of the other element of it. A lot of this, like, oh, why is the Democratic bench so weak? They're actually saying, oh, isn't it a shame that the Democrats lost the yeah lost the twenty ten and twenty fourteen midterms? And also, I mean, one of the truest things Bill Clinton's ever said is his criticism of Sanders for saying, oh, these awful blue dog Democrats. Like Mark Pryor ended his political career in order to pass Obamacare. Right? You you can you can run in as many primaries as you like for the presidency, talking about expanding the welfare state. But unless you can get Democrats elected to the Senate in traditionally Republican seats, right, then you're actually, and this is the depressing thing about Hillary's presidency, then you're just going to be someone who sits in the White House while the Republicans sit there going, no. Well, I also feel about this, the mimsiness about Clinton. is like, do, have, have these people forgotten that there's a vacant seat on the Supreme Court and they can't get anyone through because the Republicans are basically gone like, no, we're going to wait and see if there's a Republican president before we, we confirm this, right? In the hope that we won't, you know, that we'll, 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 we'll make another swing voter go to us. And there's loads of decisions that are just sitting on the, the bench with a 4-4 split. Um, you know, and with some really big stuff that's recently happened that has been really, really bad, like decisions like Citizens United that have just made it, you know, that have really, I think, made American politics a lot worse. I mean, there's a, still always so much pushback about um, abortion rights and, 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 and states all over the country making it harder to obtain access to abortion that, you know, realistically, even if nothing else motivated you as a vaguely left-wing voter, surely that that would. Well, yeah, quite. But I also think a lot of this gnashing of teeth ignores the fact that every every sign that is from a pollster I would describe as credible and also, more importantly, from the early voting indicates that she's going to win, Right. It's closer than than I would like. Ultimately, however, again, this may be where my my love for Obama is blinding me to the limits of what is possible. But ultimately, Barack Obama, after eight years of a disastrous presidency, Mm. um, I know some of our listeners actually quite like uh, George W. Bush. uh, um, Really? Yeah, they just like Bushes. It's why they listen to the podcast. They like... They'd, have Red Bush tea, Stephen <laughs> Bush podcast. It's true, there's one Bush, Bush that we can all get on like, board with. Uh, but um, but but anyway, um, but after that, widely he... seen to be disastrous, right? Yeah. And he won by seven points and 192 electoral college votes. America is just so polarized; it's not a landslide country. And Hillary is probably going to win by five points and about 60 electoral votes after eight years of being the incumbent party. That is actually quite impressive. But her firewall is holding. There are a lot of really rubbish polls out there. If you want to be worried about something, be worried about the fact she is now spending money in Michigan, which (laughs) may may be a worrying sign. But I mostly think people just need to jam their hype. 
And I, d- uh, yeah, I, d- I saw you use that phrase, and I thought I still have no idea what he's talking about. I presume it comes from one of these young people's shows that I've it's heard like, so much about. Calm down, jam. Call, call your jets. Put your put your put jam. Put just put it down. Put it. And in you're a gesturing at me and saying jam a lot. Like, what are you, Jeremy jam, Corbyn here? Your hype, right? Yeah. Your excitement. Just put that hype hype away. Just. Just throw it away. I'm bringing back things from like the mid-noughties bit by bit. I'm hoping next I'll get a Labour government and eventually I'll work all the way up to being Destiny's a member child. of the EU. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> um, one, yeah, one thing is, I, I think is, is, is a really worrying thing, and we will come back and do a special election podcast next week. Um, John Ellidge has been out talking to lots of Trump voters. Is The kind of like level of horror that I feel about a Trump presidency is clearly how a lot of people feel about a Clinton presidency, right? In in a way that I don't think Republicans quite felt about a Barack Obama. I think actually if they they were more like almost dismissive of him, like he's he's just some green skin, he'll never get anything done, kind of done. But that I mean, if you think about how badly that lock her up fringe feel, then that is really kind of not going away. I think but the next year is going to be. Birthers. It took a and while for birtherism to emerge, didn't it? It was 2011 or so that was he had to release his long form certificate. But as Hillary says in her in her Harlem speech, one of the best speeches actually that um, I think a politician has ever given on race in 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 a mainstream politician in America. Certainly a in a bigger speech than one any Obama has given. But I think there are obvious reasons why Obama mm. couldn't have given that speech. It would have looked chippy in the same way that Obama can say things about the rights of women. Oh, than, yeah, Obama does him. great feminism, and everyone kind of goes, oh, if a man thinks it, then, well, now I have to take it seriously. Whereas I, it's like, oh, is she on her period? Because <laughs> that is the other thing. If, as I expect, Hillary wins, you will see a lot of, of, of articles in 2018, 2020, uh, and definitely at the end of her presidency, go, oh, she didn't do or say much about women. Uh, and that will be true. She probably will be less explicitly feminist in terms of what she says than Obama, Right. But she will say more, and she has in this campaign, said more explicitly pro-black things than Obama, because people don't trust... Uh, yeah, because like, uh, this yeah. is the thing. If you if you say something that's like, oh, actually, no, racism does exist. As a white person, people go like, oh, you know, well, that's someone objective saying it, right? Yeah. And I think probably the same thing happens to you when you say feminist things. People go like, oh, if someone has objectively looked at it rather than one of these women that's like probably got a bit of an emotional investment well, in the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Um, yeah, when when I say, oh, I so in our my morning email. By the way, I do a morning email. Um, <laughs> He's so one close. of the one of Brexit the in the morning email. One of, so one of the comment the comment pieces always is by a woman. A woman, and mostly I say oh, one of them is by a woman, right? And people are like, oh, you know, well done you, well done you. My partner, who for a long time used to organise events, whenever she's like, you know, you've got to have a woman on the panel. They're like, oh God boring on about feminism you shrew um and it, it and it is exactly that yeah like yeah, you know you just because you're not seen as having a stake in it and you have just made me realize that that i, I will it, you know there's a great bit riff in terry pratchett about the shortest distances of time in the universe and like a new york minute between it going changing from red to green and the taxi behind driver behind you beeping i think there will be a feminist betrayal minute between a Clinton election and the first op-ed from someone about how she hasn't really done anything for women. And actually, should we celebrate a woman being in the White House because, like, what about, like, drones, yeah? As if Obama hadn't also done all of those things as well. Set your watches, people! Uh, Yeah, if you'd like to tweet us to tell us who in the sweepstake you think will be delivering that article, I, uh, I have a few ideas about it myself. Then uh, you can find us at Stephen KB and at Helen Lewis. 
And now it's time for a segment called You Ask Us, where you ask us about the pressing issues of the day. Um, in order to make up for having given you a very long uh, digression about who would have won the Labour leadership had it been held under different rules and different candidates, uh, a shorter one this week. Um, who is your favourite president? President! Sorry, Stephen. I, I, I can't nominate Alexander Hamilton because he was never president because of the Reynolds pamphlet, of course. So I feel really bad about this, but I'm gonna, I'm sorry. I'm going to say Obama. I, I I just this is like when they do a thing about sitcoms and people name the last sitcom, the best sitcoms of the last hundred years, and they just go, "Oh yeah, it was Mrs. Brown's Boys because that was on last night." But but I mean, one I just and I'm very aware that I have a deeply irrational thing, but right, like I mean, I, the 2004 election was the first election I followed properly in the states, and actually the first election I followed properly because, like most people of my generation the Iraq war was sort of the first sort of big political event. So I, I desperately wanted Kerry to win. And his speech about, you know, his, his life and being mixed race and his dad not being around because he's so charismatic in this kind of ridiculous, it's like, oh, you know, he's amazing. He's like me. Obviously, there are many, many differences between Iron Barrack. Don't stop making that face. No, I was just um, imagining. Actually, I can sort of imagine the, like all the things I love about Obama, like putting on the tiara when all the people come from the science fair and like firing the spud gun and mm-hmm. like doing acting out where the wild things are. I think you could, you could do, you could, you could be a really great first lady. Um, oh, that's good to know. Um, but um, and and I just yeah desperately wanted him to win throughout. The primaries, you know, Obamacare has many things about it that, from a European perspective, revolt me. However, it is the single biggest public expansion of the public uh, sector and the responsibility of the state uh, in, in US politics in, in 50 years. I think he's held his, his office with incredible dignity. I think he has repaired the standing of America. And as the largest and most powerful democracy in the world, I think it is important that America's standing is is read for after after the Bush years, which were were disastrous uh, for it. I think in terms of his thought, I think is 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 what I find the most impressive thing about him. Right, like I cannot wait for that memoir that we're going to get about what happened. Even when he's talked to people about, um, was that a very long piece in the Atlantic about the Obama doctrine, about his uh, his ideas about foreign policy and where it was, was just incredibly well thought through. Or the Michael Lewis profile in Vanity Fair, where he talked about the fact that he always makes the forty nine fifty one decision because if it was any easier, it would have come to someone beforehand. And just how deep he's thought about how you run an enormous sclerotic bureaucracy um i think is really impressive yeah so who's yours well that's the trouble is i feel like you've taken a you've taken a bummer away from me um do you know what in that case let's go to the other end and i might actually just say washington because what i mean and actually specifically standing down um, what he did in terms Taught of them how to say, say goodbye, goodbye, say goodbye. Yeah, exactly. No, I know, but genuinely, and and as the like, um, as George the Third sings in in Hamilton, you know, like you've stood down. Like I didn't know that was a thing a person could do. I think mm. as an example to uh, uh, when um, the world was in a very, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's hard for us to remember now just how much, how incredibly destabilizing the French Revolution felt to people, and the mm. fact that people had executed their and the fact that Cromwell. Kings. In many ways, the only analogue in the English-speaking world to have thrown off and said, did name his own son and died in office. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To, to then say, I, we've, we have created a new nation and I've put all these institutions in and now the thing that I need to do for it is to leave the stage, I think was an incredibly powerful scene. Unfortunately, it kind of comes back to your Obama point, though, because I would love a third Obama term, like... 
that guy, as far as I can say, like, just stay in there. Keep doing it. You pl- keep plugging away, Barry. But but it's really important about, uh, you know, about a message about democracy is that it has to be bigger than any one person. And actually, I was reading a really interesting thing that was saying, you know, the best thing that Al Gore did after that election, that he won the popular vote in, and then the very dodginess of the hanging chads, was to say, I concede. I concede, and not spend the next four years agitating about how he'd been robbed and it was rigged. Because however bad you think the George W. Bush presidency was, it would have been entirely worse to have somebody trying to undermine and delegitimize the institutions, right? Anything, any democracy has to be bigger than any one person or any single leader. Yep. A worse president. Okay. Jefferson. Creepy, racist, rapist. Yeah... Yeah, I, yeah. I, there, there have been lots that have just been a bit crap, though, haven't there? Like, that just didn't really kind of... I mean, maybe not worse, but I mean least favourite, right? If I could just, like, if, you know, if there's an I mean, afterlife... I don't, I'm not going to make massive arguments that William Henry Taft was, like, uh, you know... Because there's a lot of them that are just very forgettable. Um, I've got a strange love for Carter. Yeah? But, hang on a minute, was he really worse than Nixon? Yeah, I just feel, yeah, Nixon, like, did try and, like, you know destroy his enemies using the machinery of the state but 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 to be fair there is a lot of problems with jefferson as well okay well why not send us your best and worst presidents and and extra points if you're listening john ellidge because you will have been listening to a, a very good podcast called presidential about all the presidents and will therefore be able to pick out really obscure ones that none of the rest of us will be able to do planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.